This week, I want to speak about commission. And so, uh, let's read Acts 1 and verses 1 to 11, and then we'll start talking about that. Acts 1. My former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things, all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I'd just like to pray, and then we'll be getting into that passage again. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. And Lord, I, I, I confess... It, to you and to my brothers and sisters, a certain degree of trepidation, Lord, that I just pray that you would take my words and help me to, to be uh, challenged myself and caught up myself in what you're saying. Lord, I, I want this to be uh, you speaking to us, myself included. I pray, Lord, that you would somehow envision us for what we're here to do. Somehow, Lord, stir us out of our very easy sort of uh, daily routine that, that absorbs our time and energy. Help us to raise our heads up, Lord, and see people around us who are going to a, a, a godless eternity. Help us to, to be uh, engaged in your mission to lost men and women, to, to people in slavery and bondage to sin and to death and to fear. Help us, Lord, to be aware and alert to your great mission to the nations. We ask for your help, Lord. I ask for your help in bringing this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I do, as I said in my prayer, feel a certain degree of trepidation. It's a funny sort of feeling. I'm not sure if it's God or if it's just me. Um, but I think what I'm aware of is that uh, I feel challenged by this subject as much as any of you would, and uh, I hope will. And I just want God to speak to us all about how do we actually do what we're here to do. Um, and you'll see as I go along what I, what I mean. First of all, I want to say that I think the game plan, if I can put it that way, for the church age is very simple. And I think Christians complicate it and spend multiple millions of pounds and many, many multiple hours complicating what is really pretty simple. There are two key verses. There's verse 8 and verse 11 that we read. Let's just quickly look at those again. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And then verse 11, almost the second part of it, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, I think the game plan is therefore very simple. God has initiated the final phase of this earth's history. And it really is the final phase of earth's history. I believe there have been many uh, times when God has moved in different ways in past generations and past ages. But in our age, this is the age of the new covenant, the age of the Holy Spirit, after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the plan is very simple. Receive the power of the Holy Spirit. This is to Jesus' followers, the church. And you will be my witnesses, first of all in Jerusalem, then out to the area around Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. In other words, in ever-growing circles, concentric circles working out. Following Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they had to get on and tell everybody about him. And then, the last verse we read, verse 11. The same, this same Jesus, the same Jesus, personally, will return at the end of that age, and that will bring things to conclusion. And we'll talk about that a little more another time. But actually, that is it. This is the task. Get on with it. And you will know when the job is finished because this same Jesus will return and draw the age to a conclusion. So people like us, followers of Jesus, the church, are to receive power from the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. We're to be asking for the Holy Spirit to come on us. So that between the Holy Spirit's coming, which is at Pentecost, and Jesus coming again, which has not yet happened, we will go to the whole world, every tribe, nation and people, in every generation go to our world, really, and tell them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is, he is here to save us. And he has, his salvation is available to all men and women of any background. That's good, isn't it? But it's also very simple. And we are to do that and keep doing it and keep expanding. And it seems like there's two levels. What we do in our own generation and looking over history, the constant expansion as well, which is interesting, until Jesus comes back. I've got a quote uh, on the notes from Leslie Newbegin. And uh, I just want to read it as it goes up on the screen. He summarizes things like this. The church is the pilgrim people of God. It is on the move hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all men to be reconciled to God and hastening to the end of time to meet its Lord who will gather all into one. It, that's the church, cannot be understood rightly except in a perspective which is at once missionary and eschatological. Long word, sorry. Eschatological is that this age is coming to an end, that history is going somewhere and Jesus will soon be coming back. So our whole behaviour in the church age is to be affected and governed by these two things, that we have a mission and that we will meet Jesus face to face. All of us in this room will one day meet this same Jesus face to face. Every one of us here will see Jesus and we'll meet him. And that will affect how we live now and it will affect how we make judgments. But also, whilst we're here, we have a mission. And really, Leslie Newbegin is right. These are the two things that are central to our understanding of who the church is and what we're meant to be doing. 
And those are the two things that perhaps if time had allowed, I'd have wanted to put together this morning. But I feel again to do one at a time. So I'm going to look at the commission in a little more detail. And so as we go on to think about the mission we're on or the commission we have from Jesus, I want to ask a question. And let's start with this one. Where is Jesus now? Where is Jesus now? Now, um, some of you will know the answer to that, hopefully. That should be um, going up on the screen after commission. Where is Jesus now? Now, you see, I think it's very important we ask this question because most people in our society, if they know about Jesus at all, and and people still do in in modern Britain, they think of him as a marginalised Galilean peasant. They think of him as he's portrayed in the um, films. And often he's portrayed very powerfully. It's not always badly portrayed, but actually that is historical. You know, so he's a man walking around uh, looking like he does, sometimes like a hippie, depending on the age in which the film's made. Sometimes, you know, the, the most powerful recent film, which is very powerful, Passion of the Christ, we see him in agony and being whipped and beaten and, and quite, quite a powerful film. And there's been other films as well, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and that creates this sort of mentality, which we perhaps have, even as Christians, that Jesus is some like sort of quite ordinary Galilean guy walking about somewhere, even if it's in heaven. But actually, if you want totally up-to-date Christology, uh, theology about Jesus Christ, and you should have totally up-to-date Christology as Christians, we need to know who is, where is Jesus now, what's he like now, and what's he doing now. And to, to get that, we need to read things like Acts, we need to read the Epistles, and we actually need to read the book of Revelation. We're obviously not going to do all that this morning, but I'm going to make reference to it. So right here in Acts 1, verses 9 to 11, we first of all see that Jesus is alive now. So the same Jesus who was crucified is actually alive at this moment in what is for us a moment of time. And he is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now he's got a new body, a resurrected body, extremely uh, different in quality, shall we say, to the body that was crucified, but it is Jesus. Jesus, a man, is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, which is a powerful thing in itself. We'll get back to that for a moment or two later. Now this Jesus, in this particular incident in Acts, was seen as being enveloped in a cloud, What's that all about? Well, this isn't an ordinary cloud. This is the cloud of God's glory. This is a cloud that you get referred to a number of times in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And probably the link for the disciples at this time was the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, when a cloud came down and Jesus was was sort of for a while in this cloud and then he reappeared as Jesus. And I guess that may be, to be fair to them, <laughs> why, they, why they were standing around, because they'd expect him to reappear like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, but this cloud was not like a vapour, water vapour cloud. This is the cloud of God's presence, the cloud of God's glory. Quite what happened at this point, it's hard to analyse, but what's called the ascension may not have been Jesus going up like he got a rocket pack until he was right out of sight. I mean, it's quite hard to know what they're describing, and they are describing what they saw. These were real incidents described by the writers, or recorded by Luke, hearing it from others, probably, actually, to be strictly accurate. But, but, but what they saw was sort of a sense of Jesus moving away from them into a cloud. Where did he go? He went into the presence of God. 
That's where he is now. And, it, and it's not necessarily light years away, actually. The presence of God is more like another dimension. The, the physical presence of God, I mean, the throne of God. If heaven is, is not necessarily the other side of the universe. God's bigger than the universe. I mean, he's everywhere. But, but there's a sense in which Jesus just finally went off into the presence of God in a, in, in a way that for those 40 days he hadn't quite so finally done before. So that's where Jesus is now. And then in Acts 7, verse 55, we haven't got time to look at these. Stephen is being stoned. As he dies, is dying, he sees Jesus. And it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Listen to that. Saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So as Stephen died, I suspect Jesus was about to welcome the first master into his presence. And as Stephen died, he suddenly saw, as it were, what this cloud had enveloped. He saw that like a curtain back, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, ready to welcome him. Well, to welcome his spirit as he left his old battered tent behind, which had been stoned. He went on into the presence of God, absent from the body, present with the Lord, which is what's taught later by by Paul himself, who was at that point an unbeliever watching Stephen being stoned, quite cheerfully watching him. But actually later he was to be able to articulate the truth that when we die as Christians, we go straight to be with Jesus, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so we see him in his glory straight away. It's wonderful. Now in Acts 9, Saul himself is converted and becomes a Christian. And his experience is that a blazing light appears and he collapses on the ground and is actually blinded. And he says, who are you, Lord? And the answer comes, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. So again, we get a bit of sense of Jesus isn't quite a marginalized Galilean peasant, is he? There's a glory and there's a light and a guy like Saul, who is a really tough customer and hates the church and kills people, is completely polaxed and blinded and submitted to the whole thing which might be an interesting precursor and memory. I just remind you that that sort of experience may be what we all experience when we meet him on that day of judgment. You see, Saul hated Jesus. Saul probably had a thousand arguments why Jesus was a phony Messiah, why his followers ought to be killed, why they were utter nuisance, and he knew his Old Testament, and he was very confident of what he was doing. And I bet... If you'd asked Saul a few days earlier, if you met this Jesus of Nazareth, what would you say? I'd give him a piece of my mind, to be honest. He's been a right nuisance. We've got the Romans to cope with, and now this idiot starts his movement, and we have to sort them out, get rid of them, so that we can deal with the real problem, which is the Romans. But when he meets Jesus, he doesn't say a thing. He's absolutely on the floor. His eyes are blinded in his case, and he's just shivering with fear, really, as are other people with him. Who are you, Lord? That's what it's like when you meet Jesus. That's what it will be like. We won't give him a piece of our mind. We won't tell him why we think he should have done this and he should have done that. We will be like Saul. We will be just before this incredible person, the Son of God in his glory. Well, you get the fullest picture in, in Revelation 1. So I'm actually going to read it to you. Just a few verses. This is John the Apostle. And remember, John was actually present at the incident in Acts 1 when Jesus went ascended to heaven. 
he was present in the 40 days when I don't think Jesus was quite as uh, unveiled in his glory. He must have been more ordinary. They were sort of able to talk to him and, and he cooked fish for them on one occasion. But in, our, in Revelation 1, John meets the Jesus he knew, but he hardly knows at one level. This is uh, Revelation 1 and verse 12. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is the risen, glorious Lord. This is Jesus today. Now, there is poetry, there is metaphor there. I don't think Jesus has a physical sword waving rather clumsily from his mouth, as some medieval paintings have it. I think that's the word. Jesus' word is like a sword. Everything he says cuts. I think he's blazing light. I think this is John trying to describe. What's it mean? His voice was like rushing waters. It means it was booming. Have you ever been near a really big waterfall? His voice, it wasn't like it was booming. It just shook me. It's like being near a roaring waterfall. As he's describing that it's this awesome experience of meeting the risen Christ and a glorified Christ at the right hand of the Father as he is now. And again, the curtain is drawn back and John has the privilege of engaging for a few minutes, flat on the floor to be honest, with Jesus the one who is the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and hell. This is our Jesus, brothers and sisters. When we're worshipping this morning, this is who we're worshipping. This is what he's like now. This is Jesus Christ. What is he doing right now? Well, Jesus is Lord right now. Jesus is Lord over all. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He told us so, Matthew 28. But this is obvious from what we're reading even here. Even the keys of death and hell. He has all authority. But he is sort of doing things. (laughs) He's waiting for the time when all his enemies will be under his feet. That hasn't happened yet fully. Satan, sin, and death itself. We will benefit when it happens, but there's something ongoing about that. Perhaps I can touch that when I speak about the, the end of time. I don't know, the climax. But, but there's something of it, sort of a process, it would seem. That Jesus has all authority, and yet there is a waiting for all enemies to be under his feet. Here's other things the Bible clearly tells us he's doing. He mediates for us. That's in 1 Timothy 2.5. So Jesus is our mediator right now, at this minute, between a holy God and us. Jesus is constantly mediating, bringing you and I into the presence of God.
Um, Jesus is, is right now mediating between you and I, uh, between you, you and I and God. He's, he's linking us. He's, he's bringing us in the presence of God. More precisely, there's things described in, for example, 1 John 2, verse 1, where it says that we are... Well, let's read that one, because it's ever so near Revelation. You don't have to turn back much. 1 John 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Isn't that good? Brothers and sisters, this is to Christians. We're not meant to be ruled by sin. In fact, we don't have to be. That's part of what the rest of the epistle's about. But if anybody does sin, Jesus is defending you. Hallelujah. This wonderful Jesus is pleading, my blood has availed for that one. He's in me. She's in me. He's covered by my blood. And I think the weight of Scripture here is that that happens anyway. Your relationship with God certainly requires you to confess your sin and put things right. You will have a much better response from God, much better relationship with him when you do confess your sin. But there is a sense of an ongoing cleansing, and it's carried several times in these verses. Verse 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And apparently in the original, that's a very ongoing sense to the, the language, that Jesus is ongoing cleansing you from all unrighteousness. So actually, even if you do blow it this morning, do something you really shouldn't, and provided you're in Christ, you're a believer covered by the blood of Jesus, and you die before you actually put that right, you will go into the presence of God. Because you don't actually have to have all your ducks in a row morally just when you get, you know, die. Because it's all on me. And if I lost my temper or did something I shouldn't, and if I was still steaming around and then wallop, I got killed in some way, road accident or something. Oh dear, I've lost myself. No, it doesn't work like that. You are being cleansed all the time. Jesus is pleading your case all the time. And the blood of Jesus Christ goes on cleansing you. Now, your relationship with God will suffer if you don't deal with something with that. You may even be disciplined by the loving Father. You may have some rather uncomfortable times until you sort that out. But that is a different issue to this fundamental one, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and it's his wounds that count. And it's his blood that avails for me, and I trust avails for you. And he is, as it were, constantly bringing that to the Father. We're told in Hebrews 7:25 that he intercedes for us. Isn't that good? Jesus is praying for his church. Right now, Jesus intercedes for us, and we need it. And John 14, verses 1 to 3, tells us that he is preparing a place for us. So Jesus is actually getting stuff ready for when we're there with him. He's preparing things for the age to come. It's pretty exciting stuff. And just uh, in these letters, Paul sums up one or two things that link some of this with us. So they're going to go up on the screen. Just give you a taster. Ephesians 1, verse 22 to 23, say this. And God has placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And uh, that's, that's Ephesians 1, verses 22 to 23. I think I should have gone up on your screen. So God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now I want to put up the next verse, please. Ephesians 2, verse 6. 
God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. Now, if you, put, you can't see those two together, but I hope you remember them. Basically, Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father, but we share something of his position. Now, that's powerful. That's powerful stuff. And so, we come to the real nub of this commission stuff that Jesus gave us. He didn't commission us to take the gospel out of weakness and out of frailty alone and just because, you know, he wanted to give us something to do till he came back. We are working out the plans of the risen Jesus. We are his body on earth. The church is the anointed body of Christ on earth. We are to go in his name with his authority and we're to work out what Jesus wants us to do. We're to work it out on the earth until he comes back. And we are backed up by this authoritative figure at the right hand of the Father in heaven who is praying for us, who's equipping us, and who is, in a sense, pleading our case, even in our brokenness as we go forward. This same Jesus, right hand of the Father, will come back one day, but he is linked with us. We are seated in Christ, and he sent us out as his representatives. We've been given authority by him and his name to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth and to the end of the age. We are Jesus' body on earth, and we have no freedom to stop witnessing to Jesus until the ends of the earth and the ends of the age are both reached. And there's a verse in Scripture that indicates these two things may be a coincidence of them. They may come together. It's Matthew 24, verse 14, if I could have that up, please. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There's a mysterious sort of coincidence of these two things, it would seem, in the plan of God. So that although in every generation we want to go to our generation with the gospel, on the bigger scale, as we move towards the end of the age, there will be evidence that the gospel has gone to every tribe and nation. That would seem to be the logic of what Jesus said. And I would say to you, without trying to be uh, sort of, I don't know, the things I criticise, trying to make time and guess times when Jesus is coming back, I would say to you that that coincidence in Matthew 24:14 of the two things coming together is far more likely now than it would have been a few centuries ago. It's far more sort of on the edge of that, that actually the ends of the earth can be reached at the same time, you know, maybe in a generation. And then that, that will bring time to an end that Jesus can come back. I don't think it is exaggerating things to say that there is a sense of imminence about the return of Christ. But we leave that for another day. Here at the beginning is the commission in Acts 1 to get out and take this gospel. And so the salvation plan of God gets sort of turbocharged with the Holy Spirit. Now the full plan is revealed. Salvation is not merely for the Jews, though it will start there, Jerusalem, Judea, but it is for every race, for every nation, for every tribe, for every man and woman, for every child on the planet. All Adam's fallen sons and daughters are to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for them. And in our day, we're to do it. 
And so the followers of Jesus are to be his ambassadors. That's a a biblical term. And an ambassador represents a a power. Now, we represent a power. The power is this risen Jesus that we spent a quarter of an hour looking at. That that this Jesus on the right hand of the Father is the one we are ambassadors for. We represent him. We carry his message. We carry his love. We carry it in his authority and his power. And we take it out into a sin-sick world. You know, sometimes people talk about an apostolic succession. And they're usually talking about something like bishops in the ecclesiastical setup of churches. Or they may be talking about some orthodox tradition of doctrine. I don't think those are the apostolic succession. I think there is an apostolic succession. And it's the succession of witness to Christ in the power of the Spirit, which is handed down to every generation of the church. And in our day has come to us. There is a succession. It's the apostolic succession of this gospel going to the whole world in this form that's here in these these chapters of Acts. And it's handed down like a baton, generation after generation. And in our day, the baton is in our hand. That in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to have a world view. We're to look at our friends as potential people to hear about Jesus. And then we're to look at the circles going out and out to the ends of the earth. And there is an exciting possibility that this generation has the potential to reach every tribe and nation and tongue. That there is a sense of acceleration. We know where all the world is for a start. We know where the nations all are. They probably didn't really know what they were not reaching 500 years ago or or even uh, certainly 50 years ago, they would, but 500 years or 1,000 years ago. We now know where all Adam's fallen sons and daughters are. And and, and in a sense, there's a sense of acceleration going on as we take the gospel to the whole nation. And the baton has come to us in our day. How do we practically get hold of this in these last few minutes? I want to begin to try and be practical because that's big stuff. The early church, this apostolic succession means we're to live like they did. The early church lived and breathed this thinking. They really did. Turn with me to Acts 13. I think it's going to, the reference is going on the screen, but I want you to look at it yourself. Turn to Acts 13 and verse 46. We're actually going to look just briefly at how they thought. And we've got to learn to think the same way, I think. Acts 13. This is uh, Paul and Barnabas. And they've, uh, with verse 46, they've tried to take the gospel to the Jews. So they started with those closest to them in every sense of the word. But they've been rejected and actually been talked about abusively. So verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, what I want you to get, just keep that open for a moment, is a sense of urgency and a sense of clarity that's in the early church. First of all, just that verse that's quoted in verse 47, that is a quotation from Isaiah 49, verse 6. Now, the New Testament is giving us an authority, and we need to be bold on this, that those sort of scriptures apply to the church. Now, actually, in actual fact, the church at this time was largely Jewish converts. Paul and Barnabas themselves, I think, probably were. So it's not an anti-Jewish thing. But I don't want us to think about race. In the New Covenant, it's the people of Jesus Christ who are God's people. And so this promise they have grasped as this is for us. When we read in Isaiah these amazing prophecies about God's people being a light to the Gentiles, in fact, the prophecy seems to be about the Messiah himself, and they've taken that on as the body of Christ. They see themselves as the anointed um, body of Christ, as the sort of corporate Christ. And they say this promise is for us. We are to be a light, we could say, to the world around us. We're to be a light to everybody around. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. And we are to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. If we don't do it, we the church, no one else will bring the message of salvation. It isn't in other religions. They are different ways of grubbing around in the mess trying to sort human difficulties out. We have the news, the good news, that there is a saviour, Jesus Christ. And that good news needs to go to the ends of the earth. So they thought like this all the time. And they realised that they were, in a sense, living with a vision, that they were to be a light to their culture and beyond, and they were to take this salvation to the ends of the earth. But then look how they behave. They start off telling those near at hand. And I think they have a very simple and in some ways quite a radical philosophy. They don't spend forever talking to people who don't want the gospel, which is quite challenging. I'm not saying we don't show patience and care, but there is a sort of, this is too precious to spend all my time telling people who don't want it, about it. They're sort of constantly, I think it's very clear biblical philosophy. They are constantly looking who's appointed for life. That's the phrase used in uh, verse 48. All who were appointed for eternal life. Another phrase used in the gospel, where's the man of peace, the woman of peace? They're constantly looking for who's open to the gospel. Who's open to this? Who's open to this? Now, that doesn't mean you don't try and share it with everybody, but there's a sort of healthy drivenness, if I can put it that way, that we've got to get out there and share this. And if they don't want it, there'll be other people who do want it. And we're looking for people who not only are appointed for life, who honour the word of the Lord. We're looking for people who are open to the word of the Lord. Now, somehow, we've got to get this sort of balance in our own spirits that we're not, we're prepared to share the gospel with anybody and everybody, but we're not going to spend forever hitting a brick wall. Because actually, there are too many out there who need to hear about Jesus. So there's a sort of healthy... Uh, I keep using the word driven, which isn't normally a healthy word, but there's a sort of healthy urgency, might be a better word, about it, that we're going to get on with those who do want it. And I believe the Holy Spirit will guide us in a similar way. I think we're not called, all of us, to be passive. And I want to be challenged myself about that. But we're also not caused to spend, called to spend 
all our time just sort of, I don't know, hitting our head on against a brick wall. There are people out there who God's already speaking to. All around us, there are people who are open. We just got to find them. <laughs> and, and we find them by talking to them. And we sort of, in a sort of loving way, don't actually over linger. <laughs> you know, the, I mean, th- this was a bit more uh, aggressive because they were persecuted. But I don't want us to necessarily copy the whole thing. It's the principle. It's that you, you're looking for those who are open because it's too important to waste time. And, and you're looking for people who, who, who begin to honour the word of the Lord, who, who, who may be men and women of peace, who are appointed for life. That seems to be the basic strategy. And, and that strategy seems to go on all through the book of Acts, whether it's with individuals or with communities, actually, that they look for an opening. If there's no opening, it happens at the end of here, they're kicked out, they shake the dust off their feet and go on to the next community. Now, I think something of that has got to be in us. Now, having said that, we don't do it in an aggressive way. I want to keep saying that, but it's more of a a Holy Spirit leading. That's what I would say. I I was very interested listening to J. John last Sunday. He used these incidents where he just felt prompted, didn't he, to um, talk to the shoeshine boy, man, uh, or the lady on the plane, and that sort of thing. Well, I've been reading a book. Some of you have read it. Has anybody read Just Walk Across the Room by Bill Hybels? Just to see if anybody's read it, not because I'm going to do anything with you. Put your hand up if you've read Just Walk Across the Room, Bill Hybels. About three or four of you. Can I really encourage you to buy it and read it? Just Walk Across the Room, Bill Hybels. It is really very good in a challenging way and very not heavy at all about just being open to the Holy Spirit every day for incidents where you just talk to people and look for the Holy Spirit to lead you just to, to give a little bit of, of, of the gospel. Now, he's not talking about, he's very strongly not talking about trying to save everybody or give everybody four spiritual laws. It's about showing the love of Christ to people. It's about being friendly. But it's also about looking for those opportunities that just open up a bit more. He's got some very realistic ones, which made me smile because I thought, yeah, I could be like that, where he ages putting a wheelie bin out, basically, with a new neighbour. This is he himself, Bill Hybels. And, uh, and, you know, um, weeks go by and they don't even talk to each other. Typical men, you know, just nod. And then they finally he sort of says hello. And, and I mean, this goes on for two years. And he just says hello to the neighbour. And they both find that both their names are Bill. So I thought that should be easy. And this is their first proper conversation. And then Bill, the neighbour, says to him, um, what do you do? He says, I'm a church pastor. He says, oh, well, I've got nothing to do with church. I don't never go to church, so this should be easy. So Bill says, what do you do? He says, oh, I own a, a, a garage uh, franchise for Chrysler. Bill, Bill Hybel says, oh, I'd never drive a Chrysler, so it will be easy. You know, so it's quite half-jokey and a bit, you know, tense. You know, like, I'm not interested in your life and I'm not interested in yours. But they, because every week they, put, they don't get rude. It's just manly stuff, you ladies need to understand manly pride with a bit of humour and a bit of sarcasm to each other. So basically, it sort of just isn't a very major conversation. That's the point. But every week, he puts the wheelie bin out, and they just pass that sort of time of day. Get a little friendlier. And, uh, but he says, you know, it's just a few minutes. And then obviously, I say obviously, because there's a point in telling the story, that, that eventually, they, that the conversation's a little longer, and then, you know, actually, I think um, the neighbour's job situation takes a turn for the worse saying else. So they have a longer conversation. And eventually, you know it, about two years later, Bill and his family come to the Christmas service 
and eventually, and it's about three years, he gets saved. <laughs> now, I mean, but it's that sort of thing. It's about how do we even start stuff and how do we, and, and I think it's really good. I'm, and I'm, actually, I'm going to pray that I have some Bill Hybels type experiences on my trip to India when I've got all these hours in the plane. I'm not traveling with Christians this time. Normally, I travel with a bunch of leaders. And we all sit there talking earnestly. But this time, I'm on my own. And the temptation will be to read the newspaper and read a book, which I will take. But I'm asking God for some Bill Hybels type walk across the room things. Because some of them are really very simple and very basic. Like just queuing in a restaurant and it's all full. And so you start just talking to each other and sort of say, oh, you know, do you know one nearby as good as this? This is a bit busy. And people say, no, we were were going to ask you the same. And in the end, that leads to a meaningful conversation. And it's not that they all do. It's just that that's all you do to start, really. And, and it's a very good book. So you're looking for the Holy Spirit. You're looking for the Holy Spirit leading you. But you've also got this balance that it's God's work. Are they appointed for life? Are they people God's working in? That's not to be nasty, but it's to be relaxed about it. You can't force it on people. And in the end, it may be that you sow a few seeds. You're just one part of a huge sort of network or chain of things it may be in some mysterious way they're not interested. So you just, without any pressure, you just move on. Because that is how it is. We are eager to see men and women brought into God's kingdom. God's missional. Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. And he's still doing it through us. Here's a quote from Bill Hybels. He writes, One thing I've learned is that life's great moments evolve from simple acts of cooperation with God's mysterious promptings, nudges that always lean towards finding what's been lost and freeing what's been enslaved. He's got some very good little incidents where he feels you, that's what God generally leads you into. You suddenly find, hey, there's issues here. And then you've got to have the courage or even the sensitivity to just gently open the conversation a bit further. Not heavy. Sometimes people will shut down, sometimes they won't. I mean, he, he'll talk about both. And, but there's that prompting there's that looking. Is this someone who's open? Is this someone who, needs, who Jesus wants me to share with? It's not, they all need him, but someone who Jesus is working in. We all need Jesus Christ. Everyone needs the good news. And our prime mission is to work with Jesus to seek and to save what was lost. I felt quite challenged thinking about this. Um, I'll be honest with you. I felt challenged in this book because I was talking to Marion over breakfast. That's why we we're late for the prayer meeting. And I think I'm so sort of, Sometimes two bottles, you know, I, he's got an incident there which really rang a bell with me. It was the incident in the restaurant because he's, he, he, he's not going home. He's had a late meeting at church and uh, the equivalent to the M25 at Chicago he knows will be full. So he thinks I'll eat in a nearby restaurant and go home when the, um, when the, road, the traffic's less. And I'll take this manuscript I've got to read. He's got a manuscript to read for a book. And I'll read it over my meal in the restaurant. So he goes in and this is the one where he meets talking to this couple and they just pass the time of day for 20 minutes. And then the guy of this couple invite, oh, let's have a drink while we're waiting for the table to get. So then ends up in a drink. And, and, and he, they're just sharing trivia, really. But the woman says, well, you seem very happy with your life. And so he tells them why he's happy, you know, just gently tells about his family life. And it's clear that there's something going on here. And he's, he's got an assumption that this couple may be having an illicit sort of affair or something. He's not quite sure. And then suddenly it comes out they're both gay. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, how he handled that, you know, make sure my face doesn't register anything other than what I've been showing. Because he's not, and, you know, but it's like a little bit of a shock. Because, oh, that's what it is. And, they, and, and there's this woman and this man together. And then he gets into a very meaningful conversation, but he doesn't touch the manuscript. 
And so, you know, the hour and a half when he was going to read over this meal was all gone. And, and I think, I said to Marion, I have to learn. That's, you know, because you can think, oh, I've got this hour and a half, I've got to do that. No, no, that may go completely just while you show the love of God to this couple of people. And, and alter their perception of what God's like, which is basically all he manages to do in the conversation. He doesn't get them saved or anything. But, but the, it's just challenging. And I think we're all like that a bit. I'm certainly like it. And, and actually, sometimes we make polite excuses, like, I don't want to inflict my beliefs on people. I can do that. And I think, no, that's rubbish. They all need to hear about Jesus. They need to be shown some of the love of Jesus. If they don't, You can't give them the whole deal, but they all need an opportunity for the light to shine on them, don't they? You're not inflicting your beliefs on anybody. It's the best thing that could ever happen to them if they came to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. That is the best thing to happen. They may well not, but if they do, that is still the best thing that could happen to them. You're not inflicting anything on anyone. And it's not down to us to get them right through. God's the one who's dealing with it. But are we going to be on his mission? Are we going to be seeking and saving the lost for him and with him? Jesus is, and I think this is where it links together. Jesus is saying, I've got a couple here I want you to show my love to. They've had a lot, that couple he's talking about, had a lot of very distorted views of God. So I've got a couple here, and you're going to be used by me just to put their thinking straight. That's maybe all you do this time. You won't see them saved. They'll never come to church. They were just in town uh, on a business thing. And, you know, and so you, 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 but others do. The man with the wheelie bin did end up coming to his church. So you, you do expect that God will do different things. I think it's the way it works. We must believe that the God we know is worth knowing. Do you believe that? I do believe that. I actually do. I, think, I do really believe he's worth knowing. I really believe. I know he's not going to solve every problem like that. But I believe they're better going through their problems with Jesus than without him, aren't they? It must be. I am. And so it's that fundamental heart for people mixed with a hope, enough relaxation to say the Holy Spirit's going to lead me. And basically, all I've got to do is be a little more open to him and maybe a little more flexible and a little more friendly, depending on whatever your character problem is. I'm quite friendly. I'm not very flexible. You might be very flexible and not very friendly. I don't know. I'm not saying anything about anybody in vision. Uh, whatever, whatever it is, you might need a little bit of adjusting. Me, it's flexibility. I'm quite friendly, <laughs> but I've got to get beyond just being friendly and thinking, oh, five minutes of friendship, now off I go. No, no, it might end up as an hour, and I might not get my thing read I wanted to read. I may experience that on the plane to India, I'll tell you if I do. Didn't read any of the book I wanted to read on that seven hour. So um, I, think, I think it's great. I love it. I love it. I think we need to understand we're caught up with Jesus in this wonderful thing. I must stop. Just to say to you, practically, as we do stop, that we have loads of opportunities coming up to bring people to church. And I don't mean that means you've got to go out and feel a pressure about that. I just want to alert you to it. And first one is next week. Andrew Wilson is very accessible. He is a very good speaker. He's a very able, gifted young man. And uh, he's doing a sort of Jesus, actually, isn't it? And a God, actually. He's doing a sort of apologetics gospel thing. If you've got friends in the 1820 age group, take them along. He is really good. If you come here Sunday morning, I think you'll enjoy it. And he will certainly be thought-provoking. You won't feel embarrassed that you brought your friends to listen to some sort of clumsy something or other. It will be good. Then, I won't talk about the preacher in the week following, but it's a baby Thanksgiving and I'm doing the baby Thanksgiving. And and so often one puts the gospel into that. That's that's quite, um, you know, inevitable and I want to. 
I, I should probably uh, be, be speaking the gospel there. That's that week. Then the week after that, it's Lex preaching here. Lex is a brilliant evangelist. That's the November the 9th. He'll be praying for the sick because he does a lot of that these days. God's given him a lot of faith and gift for it, actually. And so it's very much praying for the sick and preaching the gospel. That's called the Front Edge Weekend. Um, and by the way, please think of signing up one of those little brown leaflets for the, for the Saturday, which is a very good value, five pounds training in evangelism. And it will be good. It won't be a load of pressure. It'll be very good. It'll be Lex and Adrian Holloway and people like that. And it's a thoroughly good day for stimulating this very subject, reaching our friends with the gospel, working out how to do it. And let's, let's sign up for that. It's right on our doorstep. You don't have to travel far. And it's here for a Saturday, the 8th of November. But on the Sunday, it's Lex. So that's the gospel again. Then on the 16th of November, so this is every Sunday, we've got baptisms. And again, we'll have the gospel. So that's all of the next Sundays. I've got a sense for the next four weeks of gospel about them. Now, I've only really woken up to that myself in about last week <laughs> as I realized what we were planning. So I just want to say, I mean, you know, be aware of that. I don't think, I mean, you might have some embarrassment because we might be embarrassing church anyway. I realize that, but you can have to live with that. But, but actually, basically, every one of those weeks, the gospel will be preached in some way. And, uh, and, and, and it, it's, it's, I think, a good opportunity. Just drop it into your thoughts. Amen.